The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. We are committed to the ongoing process of unlearning deeply embedded notions of white supremacy and colonial racism and to continuing to become better allies wherever we can. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project. Today's play is Julius Caesar. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Erin Kelly. Hello again, Erin. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Karen Lee Pickett. I'm the Artistic Director of the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival, and I'm with Dr. Erin Kelly, Associate Professor of English at the University of Victoria. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And today we are talking about um, a speech in Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the play itself. So Julius Caesar is a play that um, is considered to be one of Shakespeare's tragedies. It's the tragedy of Julius Caesar. This play comes we think in terms of dating, pretty much right smack dab in the middle of uh, Shakespeare's writing career. Um, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Polonius at one point uh, makes a reference to how he uh, had played Brutus. Um, and and basically, and that's, that is something that's often interpreted as an in-joke, that the same actors in Shakespeare's theater company who were performing Julius Caesar might, right around the same period of time, also be performing Hamlet. So there's a way in which those two plays are speaking back and forth to each other. Um, and the play, in terms of plot, is really honing in on this very particular moment in Roman history. That basically up to Julius Caesar, you have uh, the Roman Republic following the assassination of Caesar relatively quickly after the assassination of Caesar is the beginnings of the empire. Um, And the empire meaning that you basically have Rome being ruled by an emperor, by a single ruler who is seen as a kind of absolute authority in many ways, and even as being divine. So part of what Julius Caesar is staging for us is that uh, Caesar, uh, we are basically seeing him at the beginning of this play shortly after he has actually defeated in battle someone who had once been part of that ruling small group with him, Pompey. Um, And so now basically Caesar is kind of the last ruler left standing. And what's happening in these early scenes in the play is that the people, um, the everyday people in Rome, seem to be inclined to elevate Caesar to uh, the the rank of becoming a, a king 
and a bunch of these other Romans who are of the ruling class, this extremely elite class of aristocrats um, who are invested in this kind of democratic system where there's many, many more people with power who share the power and, and work things out by, by voting and persuading each other rather than just having one authority figure. Uh, their concern is that Caesar becoming a king and emperor um, basically disempowers everyone else and to some extent particularly themselves. Um, at least in the case of Brutus, uh, there is particularly the concern that uh, there's a real investment in the values of the Roman Republic. Um, that this that that Brutus actually says explicitly that he loves Caesar, he admires Caesar, he thinks Caesar's a great person, uh, but he's opposed to anyone becoming an emperor, anyone becoming a king figure, um, and that Brutus is kind of fighting for a set of ideals. And so what we see in this play is a group of these elite Romans who come together with the idea that it is intolerable that Julius Caesar would become an emperor um, and they assassinate him. Um, to prevent that from happening. And in the process, they both trigger a civil war where the people rise up and they basically um, wind up at war against other Romans and then ultimately are defeated. And what takes over after them is another triumvirate. And Octavius basically, uh, not too very long after historically, becomes uh, Augustus Caesar, the first true emperor of Rome. And so in other words, these assassins by trying to preserve the Roman Republic in retrospect from the perspective of history, very much wind up bringing about the rise of the Roman empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that idea of, of trying to uh, circumnavigate fate Absolutely. No, and, and in this speech in particular, I mean, one of the things the speech is concerned about, you know, with some of these lines that have now become kind of, you know, famous uh, sayings from Shakespeare, but, you know, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. I mean, in some ways is, is raising this idea of, you know, do things happen because it's, quote, in our stars, because it's in our fate, or it's part of our astrological profile, or it's fortune? To what extent do we as in, have agency as individual people to shape our own outcomes, to choose our own actions, to, to make things happen, to affect things in the world? And yet, it's also by necessity, because it is focusing on history that has already happened, um, it, it also makes all of this quite ironic because the audience knows what is going to happen. The audience knows what the outcome is going to be. So the characters may have the sense that they are able to choose their actions, but the audience has the sense that their actions are actually quite constrained and that the outcomes are already decided because um, they are. Um, and then the play makes that even more ironic, kind of turns that up to 11 in a certain kind of way. 
Um, so Cassius, by the end of the scene, for example, he really wants to persuade Brutus to, to be on his side in an attempt to get rid of Caesar. And one of the things that Cassius comes up with and, and says is, well, you know, I basically will create all of these messages that look like they are from lots and lots of people and lots and lots of common people expressing support for Brutus. And I'll make sure that all of these messages are put in places where Brutus will come across them. And the, the idea is that Cassius is basically you know, setting up a, a propaganda kind of, you know, it's he's he's falsifying public support. He's essentially like hiring supporters, you know, to show up at a public event and share posters. Um, that that you know that that basically Brutus will then have the sense that what he's about to do has enormous public support, which is in fact being manufactured. Would this have been uh, at all considered uh, by contemporaries any uh, sort of politically? Um, having more to say than just about Caesar? Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, there, there's good reasons to believe that it wasn't too dangerous for, for, for a number of reasons. So um, Shakespeare's theater company, as with any theater company in late 16th, early 17th century England, in order to have a play performed would have to have it licensed. And they would have to have it licensed by an official who was associated with the, the court. A play that was not licensed could not be performed. And then it couldn't after that also be printed. That doesn't mean that it couldn't be interpreted as possibly uh, promoting some dangerous ideas. I mean, England in the early modern period is a monarchy. Um, it's, you know, ruled by a queen, Elizabeth, and then starting in 1603 by a king, James. Um, the, the role of that monarch is a lot more like the emperor than it is like the Roman Republic. Um, the, this idea that you have all of these characters running around who are really, really worried about having a figure who's going to be a, a, a monarch figure and that this is something to, to fight against. Um, these are dangerous ideas. And yet it really seems like part of what happened in this early modern period is that um, people got in a lot of trouble if what they put on stage was explicitly set in the present. Whereas if things were set in the historical past, and particularly if they were representing historical events, that seems to have been seen as less problematic. Um, I suppose it's also possible to make a real, what I think would be a very overly simp simplistic and reductive argument, which is, oh, well, yes, there are these people who assassinate the leader, who, who assassinate this king figure, Julius Caesar, and by the end of this play, all of them are dead. <laughs> and they have been properly punished. So, so there. So maybe the message of this play is, if you're a rebel bad, terrible outcomes will come to you. Um, again, I don't think that's a good reading of this play, but I do think, you know, it's available. And the fact that that's an available reading maybe helps to contain some of that dangerous energy that the play lets loose at various moments. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, modern productions over the past 50 years, um, I, I think there have been a few that have uh, tried to make very explicit connections to um, to current events. No, exactly. I mean, and there, there was a production, I think it was 2017, uh, Donald Trump lookalike as Caesar, and that got a lot of attention. But actually, a handful of years before that, there was another production in, I believe, Chicago that had an Obama lookalike. Yes. As it's very, very, very common for there to be productions of Julius Caesar that put someone who looks a lot alike and is dressed a lot alike, um, someone who is a contemporary political leader in the Julius Caesar role. Um, my own take is that one of the things that is maybe the most dangerous idea in this play is this idea, however, not necessarily a comment on any particular political party or any particular way of ruling, but maybe more on the idea that um, no matter what we do and no matter what we build up and no matter how powerful we are, uh, we are not fully in control and that nothing's going to last forever. And I think that idea is actually all over this play. It has to do with this most powerful government in the world, this most powerful um, city in the world, and this most powerful position in the world. And, oh, that's all done and gone now. And and I think in this particular speech where Cassius is comparing Caesar, it's it's a wonderfully, richly ironic moment where he basically compares Caesar to Colossus. The Colossus at Rhodes started construction around 292, construction finishes around 280 BCE. And then in 226 BCE, and we do know this specific date, um, there's an earthquake and, it, and the statue falls. And this is part of what Cassius is referring to when he uh, makes a mention of uh, it being why man he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus. Um, although this probably wasn't historically the case, um, it came to be believed that this giant colossus statue was not only this giant statue, but that it was somehow built so that it actually uh, was across the opening of the harbor for roads so that then ships entering the harbor would have to go under and between the legs of this giant statue. By comparing uh, Caesar to Colossus, yes, Cassius is explicitly comparing him to something big and powerful that everyone else has to crawl around, but also calling attention to the idea that Caesar is someone who can fall so I, I, when I say that I have this sense of this play as being hyper aware of, of itself as a moment in history, I also just think you get these characters who also seem to be hyper aware of themselves as at a moment in history, that Cassius's reference to a Colossus is in some ways setting up these really fascinating reverberations that Rome is what comes after Greece. Rome at this moment is after the era of the Colossus and the seven wonders of the classical world, many of which have already fallen into ruins. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting, um, interesting reminder about that sort of aspect of history and any historical drama 
sort of holding up things as being, you know, the good old days. And, and Cassius is also doing that very explicitly in this speech with the way that he's talking to Brutus. He says, oh, you and I have heard our fathers say there was a Brutus once that would have brooked the eternal devil to keep his state in Rome as easily as a king. So there's this reference to an earlier Brutus. What this play is doing then by having Cassius point to that ancient Brutus is in many ways pointing out like you have an ancestor who overthrew kings who were being tyrants and abusing their power. What good Roman men do when someone is trying to seize all the power and be a tyrant is to overthrow them. And you, my friend, Brutus, by name, by ancestry, are the guy to do it. Um, And that is very much what this speech is is doing. But it's, it's, it's explicitly invoking a moment in history as though somehow looking back to a moment in history means that you would be able to repeat it or be able to control outcomes or be able to... Um, so, so I think the play is, is explicitly interested in history and how hard it is to look at a historical moment and a set of historical events and understand them, understand them fully, um, and certainly how complicated it is to then take that history and apply it to your present moment as though that's going to allow you to have any kind of control. Right, right. I'm really excited to hear this piece and uh, have some of this new, new light shone on it. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and Cassius is a tricky, tricky guy. Um, Cassius himself admits, you know, that part of what, what his agenda is, is that he knows that he's not favored by Caesar. And he says in so many words, you know, after Brutus has left in a soliloquy, if I were in Brutus's position right now and somebody came to me to try to persuade me to do what I'm trying to persuade him to do, I, uh, there's no way I'd go along with this. But like, there's a chance that Brutus will because Brutus has this moral code. Well, isn't it partly because he is so kind of anchored in, you know, what his, his these strong beliefs is that he can't really see the possible effects of his actions. Yeah, I mean, Brutus does not seem to be a man of the people. And one of the things that, um, not just this play, I mean, but some of Shakespeare's other plays, the idea of the people, the crowd, the mob, um, the people don't come off terribly well. The, 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 it is, it is, there, there's at least ambivalence, if not full-on fear of and antagonism towards Know, the people, the common people, the populace. Um, so um, Brutus, as a figure who doesn't seem to want to have an empire, doesn't want to have an emperor, doesn't want to have a king, um, he also, though, doesn't seem to be much of a man of the people and doesn't seem to want to have a, uh, you know, representative democracy with one person, one vote, and to en- enfranchise everyone. That is that is not at all what Brutus is on about. Um, so the politics of this play are tricky. 
and they are tricky to try to map onto our current politics. I do think that, you know, what maps a little bit better onto our present moment is this idea of what happens when you try to reflect on yourself as existing in a moment in time and to maybe try to figure out what the historical parallels are. Um, particularly at the time we find ourselves in, you know, do we, does it make sense to compare our present moment to the influenza epidemic of 1918? Does it make sense to compare our present moment to the Black Plague? Does it make sense to like, what, to the Cold War, to the Blitz, to, um, th there's a lot of, you know, moments in the historical past that people will try to point to as a way of understanding their present, but that somehow those moments that are already past are never quite exactly equivalent. And that thinking about history is always, always, always an act of interpretation. Yes, that is, uh, that is for sure. We're always trying to, <laughs> trying to figure it out. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Erin. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. This is enormous fun. And, you know, Julius Caesar is, is a good play to curl up with on a winter night and to imagine battles and to imagine, uh, you know, the ancient world and to travel if only in your mind. So I hope people get some enjoyment out of it. So thank you. Great. So much. Thank you. And uh, we'll be we'll be talking to you again soon definitely thank you for listening to the soliloquy project produced by the greater victoria shakespeare festival to donate or for more information about our festival please visit www.vicshakespeare.com that's www.vicshakespeare.com stay safe and cozy this winter and we'll see you again soon <laughs>